everybody. Welcome to the October 5th, 2018 edition of Colorado Inside Out. I'm your host, Dominic Duzuti. Thank you very much for joining us. Let's get a quick take on the debate season finally starting for the governor's race. We're taping this show before the big debate here on CPT 12. When it tapes, well, we're actually going to be live on Channel 4 at 6 p.m., but you just finished watching it right here at 7 o'clock, uh, right here on Channel 12. So we hope you enjoyed it, and we have some uh, great takes on just the whole entire season as it, as it kicks off. Patty Calhoun from Westward. The debate season is finally here. Do you think this is what's going to insert some juice, some action, something for us to talk about for this governor's race? Well, something has to. If it's not the debates, it's going to be a hypodermic. This has been so dull so far. Partly it's because the circus in Washington has gotten all the attention. But it is really time for us to hear some substantive things from these candidates. Will we? I don't know. But at least we'll see if they have a pulse. David Copel from the Independence Institute and DU Law School. I'm biased. I'm a debate producer. I'm a debate moderator. I think debates matter, but it might matter to just me. Do you think the debates for the governor's race this year will matter in Colorado? Unfortunately not. And by the way, kudos to both candidates for agreeing to do eight debates. That, that's the right thing to do. Here, here. That, that's good, good civic culture. Um, one of the clearest in the history of gubernatorial de debates in the state differences between the candidates was Tancredo versus Hickenlooper in 2010. And Tancredo was sharp, he was smart, he was well-informed, and Hickenlooper was like, just don't say something stupid, I'll try to not say anything. Tancredo won all those debates by a very wide margin from the point of view of someone who's just neutrally scoring a debate. And, and yet Hickenlooper won the election. Eric Sonderman, political analyst, uh, when you're up against an incumbent, sometimes you can say, okay, the incumbent's going to play defense, the uh, challenger has to play offense. When it's an open race, uh, it's an open decision. When you look at Polis and Stapleton, for the debates that are to come, do you think we'll see uh, more offense, more defense, or a little bit of both from each candidate? I think watching these debates, whether it's the Channel 4 one that's Channel 4, Channel 12 that's going to air right before this airs tonight, or uh, I'll turn it over to my friend Mr. Seelover in a second. He was part of a debate this morning. Uh, you will quickly tell where the polls are. You will quickly tell who is playing it safe and who is coming out all guns blazing. Uh, and that usually, when I, when I tune in and watch with that lens on, it tells me who's up and who's down, who is playing, trying to run out the clock, and who is needing to change dynamics. Uh, you and I, Dominic, and I know it's been airing here, and hopefully a lot of our viewers have been watching to both sides now, the high school debate. But that gets judged in a different way than political debate. High school debate is more classical debate, who made the most compelling argument. Political debate, per David's point, isn't about necessarily who makes the most convincing argument. It's who sticks to their campaign strategy and what the needs of the moment are in a better way. Ed Seelever, uh, uh, award-winning uh, reporter with Denver Business Journal. It's great to have you on the panel, especially because this morning, on Friday morning, you moderated one of the very first debates featuring both candidates. Your take. Yeah, if uh, Eric is right that it tells you who is up and who is down in the polls, it's pretty clear they're both looking at polls showing Polis being significantly up right now. Polis, who, Jared Polis, who has never been shy about taking a controversial position this morning at the Denver Metro Chamber debate that I moderated, uh, stood back on most things, uh, declined to give an exact position on transportation funding, on the Gallagher Amendment, did not mention his 100% renewable energy by 2040 plan, did not mention his universal 
universal health care plan that he's put in commercials before. Uh, he was very deferential. He used the phrase uh, convener in chief as many times as humanly possible. So he's going to bring everyone together. Walker Stapleton came out like a frothing attack dog on every question, really went after polls, particularly for his energy and health care plans, said they would bankrupt the state. Uh, and, and on almost every question, it was about half, here's what I'm going to do, and half, here's how polls is going to destroy Colorado. So you really see two vastly different styles here. Walker is going to be on the attack from now until Election Day. Polis looks like he is going to try to sit back and look like the guy who wants to bring everyone together. Uh, and we'll see if that is going to move the polls in any way. Well, if you missed that debate at 7 o'clock on Channel 12 or at 6 o'clock on Channel 4, go to our websites, cbsdenver.com, cpt12.org. We'll be able to have it there. You can watch it in all of its glory. Let's get to the show. Colorado Inside, Out, Colorado Inside Out's own Penfield Tate announced last weekend that he is running for mayor of Denver, providing the highest profile competition to incumbent Mayor Michael Hancock to date. Tate is a former state lawmaker and a former mayoral candidate back in 2003. Kayvon Kalabari greeted the news by suspending his campaign for mayor. Uh, Patty, Tate didn't pull any punches, especially in an interview he did for your paper with Michael Roberts. What do you think of the announcement? Well, first of all, it has nothing to do with Kayvon pulling out. And Kayvon's been running for 18 months, had a lot of really strong uh, pronouncements, and we really don't know what's prompted his departure. You know, it's interesting that he, that Penn, was at this table. We see other alum who have moved on to august positions like Tom Tancredo. Don't know if his role on Colorado Inside Out sent him to Congress, but it wasn't enough to send him to the governor's office, or in fact, maybe it made sure he didn't get to the governor's office. When you think back to 2003, when Penn ran for governor, uh, for mayor, Think about the candidates we had. It wasn't just John Hickenlooper, who started out polling at 3%, but we had Ari Zavaris. We had a lot of public leaders and a really strong field. And what it also did is have a great, it prompted a great discussion on where we were going in Denver. We haven't had that discussion in the last eight years. It is really hard to beat an incumbent. Now, in 2003, Webb wasn't running again. We didn't have a third term, someone going for a third term. We do with Hancock now, and the problem is we haven't had a really good debate on where this city is going. I think the great thing about Penn getting in is we will have that debate now. We will really talk about what's gone on in Denver over the last eight years. David, on paper, uh, Denver has record a low unemployment. Uh, you see growth everywhere. Land value is at all-time highs. Uh, running against that on paper is difficult. What do you think is going to be the secret for Tate to run against that, against a two-term incumbent? Um, two things. I mean, well, first of all, the, their ideological differences are, are not very large. So it, it is more, uh, in, in some respects, about competence more than, than ideology. And you have on the one side, you know, Mayor Hancock, who has these incredible, grandiose, 30-year visions for the city. And Tate, who also knows a lot about how the city works, uh, I think has much more of a focus on let's make things work right now instead of all this, this talk of the, the great central plan uh, we have that's going to shape Denver, you know, in, in the 37th century. Um, and you look at the practical things, you know, for all the spending that the city of Denver is doing at record levels, can they, do they bother to keep the sidewalks in southwest Denver in repair? And finally, I'd say there is one key policy difference on them, at least that's important to me. Is, you know, Hancock started 
won his first term with his commercial bat out. He drives his kid to school every day. What, what a tremendous virtue. I'm, I'm practically a superhero. I've never heard of any parent who does that. But Hancock's plan, and Tate's complained about this on, the, on this show, is to make traffic worse so he can satisfy all the people, the Puritans, who think, yo, you should be biking or taking the bus and driving a car to work by yourself is like, that's a very sinful activity. And Tate is and much, much more focused on, no, let's like actually have the traffic flow in this city function. Let's not change the road grid to try to cause traffic jams. Eric, how does uh, Mayor Hancock respond to a challenge like this? This isn't an angry, this isn't a community activist with maybe a small but vocal group of people. Uh, this is much more mainstream, probably knocking on the same doors donor-wise that Mayor Hancock might have, or might have been doing these last several months. How does Hancock respond? Well, if the spin I'm getting from the mayor and the mayor's people is any indication, I think it is. They, they take this very seriously. They know Penfield Tate is a serious challenger. He's not one of the ones you just described, Dominic, that is more of a marginal candidate from, from some isolated constituency. Uh, just a couple thoughts. First of all, kudos to Penn. I mean, Penn has been a wonderful part of this panel. He's an insightful guy. I've enjoyed our dialogues when we agree, when we disagree. He's now decided to throw his hat in the ring, get in the arena, and more power to him for doing so. Secondly, this city, and I think Patty uh, touched on this point, the city needs a mayor's race. This city needs an engaged debate. And we'll see if there's another shooter drop, in, in meaning not in terms of Hancock and the way it is usually referred to these days, but in terms of another, can another serious candidate getting into the race. Is this going to be Penfield Tate, Michael Hancock, or is this going to be the two of them plus one or two other potentially serious candidates. But in any event, I think even if it's just the two of them, the city is assured of two viable candidates, strong candidates, discussing important issues, picking the future of this town. To Patty's point, throwing up incumbent mayors is not something this town does lightly. The last one was Federico Pena defeating Bill McNichols in 1983. What's that math? 35 years ago. It's not something that happens uh, with any frequency. Tate is clearly the underdog. Hancock is clearly the incumbent favorite. But I think this town, if presented the right case by the right candidate, is ready to consider a change. You know, your reminder of McNichols uh, makes me believe that this year we will have the finest snow removal in Denver throughout the entire winter. <laughs> you will not have to worry about any sort of rutted streets. It'll be immaculate this winter if anyone has a history book at the mayor's office. Uh, Ed... You see all these cranes around town. You see how well business is doing. Does that translate to business leader support of Mayor Hancock, or can it be divided when you have somebody with Tate's background? I think it can certainly be divided. And as David well referenced, I mean, if you own a business on South Broadway, you're probably complaining about the bike lanes. We've heard a lot of that, for example. Um, but in some ways, I think... The way that Penfield Tate came out of the gate implies that he is looking to be more of a slow-growth candidate. And that's not a candidate who's going to get business support. I mean, you have him talking about uh, disruptive development. You have him talking about gentrification. You have him talking about affordable housing. And, and mind you, these are three things that the mayor talks about, too. But having someone get into the race on those premises shows that the mayor's not doing enough on it. And, and I think you're going to see people flock to Tate, not the ones who are saying, all right, we need to build quicker, but the ones who are saying, 
saying, yeah, I'm tired of all the things going up around this town. So I don't think this is going to be a straight business candidate, not business candidate race. Uh, Hancock has done some things that business has really liked, uh, such as, say, the camping ban that will probably be on the ballot uh, while these two are running, which will become an issue in this race. Um, he's done some things uh, with some housing fees that they haven't. Um, but this is definitely looking like it's a grow as we are versus let's, let's rethink this growth a little bit. The Congressional Leadership Fund, a super PAC promoting GOP House candidates, pulled $1 million of ad buys from the Denver market supporting Mike Kaufman this week. However, the National Congressional Leadership Committee said it would spend $600,000 on Kaufman in the race a few days later. Uh, David, you have two organizations making a bet, one pulling their money, one putting down more money. Which organization made the wiser bet? Well, I, uh, to start with, the adver TV advertising in that particular race is an expensive and, and somewhat inefficient thing in, in the sense that when you, when you buy an ad that's going to be seen in, in Kaufman's district, you're also buying one that's going to be seen in several other congressional sure. districts. You know, it's, it's not as bad as like trying to do TV in a New York City uh, congressional race, but it's, it's not the most efficient use of your money. But I think it's notable that not only did the this Republican super PAC pull out, but the House Majority PAC, which is a Democratic PAC, pulled its money from Jason Crow, which is a way of saying on both sides, we think that Crow is set to win this. Now, that that is off, decisions like that are often good indicators of what's eventually going to happen, but not always. So in the, the last election, Ron Johnson, uh, the incumbent with, uh, senator from Wisconsin, was in such deep trouble that all the national Republican groups pulled out, and he was, to heck with all that, I'm just going to go ahead and, and fight on. And to the surprise of many, many people, he ended up winning that election. Certainly Kaufman's the guy who has the ability uh, and the inclination uh, to fight on. So I would say these, I, I'd call it a, a definitely a negative indicator uh, for Kaufman if you were betting about whether he was going to win, but I wouldn't rule him out at this point. Uh, Eric, we've known this program many times between uh, Mike Kaufman and Ed Perlmutter, two of the scrappiest politicians we've seen in a generation. But is this a canary in the coal mine for his campaign? It may be. I think David's political analysis was uh, quite on target. Uh, it is a negative indicator, but it is not definitive, to use D.C. words, dispositive. Uh, <laughs> it, it is not, it's, it's, it's not the final verdict here. I think it is probably testimony as much on the Republican side as to how bad the national landscape is for them and that they're having to do triage, even in districts such as Kaufman's, in which Anyone who counts Mike Kaufman out is a fool. I mean, he has proven the ability to withstand challenge after challenge and do so where it's not even all that close. Beat Andrew Romanoff by nine points. Beat Morgan Carroll handily. Uh, but I think the National Republicans are really having to concentrate their money into an ever-decreasing number of marginal districts to try to somehow desperately hold on to their House majority, which is probably going to be a... Uh, an ambition that they don't realize. It all comes down in my mind to one thing. This is not about Jason Crow, and it is really not about Mike Kaufman. Kaufman, it is about him to the extent that he is able to outperform the normal Republican in that district just because of 
the amount of t how hard he works it and the amount of time he spends working it. But this is about Donald Trump and the Trump drag. And is the Trump drag, drag big enough to take down an incumbent who usually wins by seven, eight, nine, ten points? Is it that big a drag? And uh, the answer may well be it is. Ed, uh, funding makes headlines for a show like this, but are we making too much of the funding story? No, I don't think we are. Um, now, I will say, to back up their points, I too have, have watched Mike Hoffman over the years. And if there is anyone who is going to overcome incredibly adverse odds, uh, I would say he would be number one on the state list of people to do it. He has fought. He has gotten to know his community in a way that I think few Republican congressmen have. I mean, the, 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 the love for him coming out of a group like the Ethiopians in his community that you typically don't see going toward a Republican uh, is pretty strong. That said... What happened here with the Congressional Leadership Fund? I mean, the, the Democrats are 23 seats behind in the House. They need to win 12 to take back the majority. And so the Republicans have to sit there and, and start with that big list that says, okay, we want to defend all of these seats. But if we had to lose 10 of them, which ones are they? And this is probably the signal that Kaufman falls into one of those, that, yes, we'd like to hold on to his seat, but we're more likely to hold on to the following 12 seats, and we need to invest in them right now and just let some of these go. Now, it was, it was notable that somebody came right in a few days later because the bad press was, was going to get worse if, if there was not some kind of uh, staunch of the flow of money here. But this is not a good sign uh, for what nationals hope for this. So, um, no, I don't think we're blowing this out of proportion. But no, I don't think it means that Jason Crow can sit back and uh, uh, enjoy the rest of the campaign. Kaufman's going to be as hard a fighter as you're going to see. Pat, let's follow up on that. How confident should Jason Crow be this week? Um, not that confident. First of all, I'd like to send a thank you note to the Republicans for pulling the money because these ads <laughs> have been the worst of the campaign so far. It is the ugliest with two honorable men running and the ads stink. So good. We're losing some of those. Kaufman's a great campaigner, and although Jason Crow has a really great backstory, Kaufman is going to be fighting hard, and it's a ground game in this district. It's going to all the debates. It's all those mailers, which I happen to see because my mother is in the district, and that's going to be how they're going to sway voters. I don't think the TV ads would have done it anyway. If you're looking for more information about the uh, Kaufman-Crow uh, race, Great surprise from Channel 12. We have a debate for you. Next Friday, 7 o'clock, the CD6 debate kicks off for a whole candidate series. It's going to be a humdinger. Be sure to tune in. A 51-49 cloture vote this morning in the U.S. Senate advanced Brett Kavanaugh's confirmation vote to the full Senate for a likely vote on Saturday or Sunday. Colorado Senator Michael Bennett spoke from the Senate floor on Thursday night, saying he is a no vote, while Senator Gardner announced on Friday that he is a yes vote. Eric, I'm not sure if there's really any surprising headline here, but do you see this impacting Colorado politics the way it all went down? Oh, of course it impacts Colorado politics and the way it impacts politics in any state. It's the issue people are talking about. Whichever side loses this weekend, which looks like it's more likely than not to be the Democratic side, and he will get confirmed by a vote or two, but we may eat crow here uh, with that prediction uh, shortly. Whichever side loses is going to be even more animated, more motivated, more pissed uh, for, for November. Uh, I watched Bennett's speech on tape. Uh, it was a powerful speech. It echoes a lot of the messages I try to, try to pronounce in terms of the harm to our political system, the fragile nature of our political system. It would have been even more powerful had Michael Bennett not been on record from almost the get-go as opposed to Kavanaugh if he had actually been a swing vote and not on the record. But it was a powerful statement. Real quick, Dominic, we should be very clear what this is about and what this is not about. 
sexual assault is part of the discussion. That is not at the crux of what this is about. It is, it's not about demeanor, it's not about privilege, it's not even about beer. It is about a power play on the part of both political parties, the Republicans who want to fill this seat as soon as possible, the Democrats who want to keep it open forever, and it is about one other word, and that word is abortion, and the way that that issue has just divided and cleaved this country for the last 30 or 40 or 50 years or more. That's what this fight is about. Everything else is peripheral no noise. Yeah, there is an awful lot of energy generated on both sides from uh, the hearings and the investigation. Did that, the lengthy investigation quell that energy, or are we going to see it pop back up again once the confirmation is voted upon this weekend? Oh, I think we're certainly going to see it quell back up again. Just as Patty mentioned that we're all going to be getting cards in the mail, we're soon going to be getting cards with Brett Kavanaugh's face in the mail, especially if you're in CD6, because now he's going to become the symbol of everything that is bad about the Republicans for Democratic activists, even though Mike Hoffman would never have had the opportunity to actually vote on Brett Kavanaugh's confirmation. Um, this is the lengthy investigation, uh, and I'm going to sound, um, you know, uh, maybe a bit jaded here, but the lengthy investigation gave both sides time to look at it and say, does it help us or hurt us more how we vote on here? And I think for Republicans, that was really the true issue here. Is it going to alienate our supporters more if we kill Kavanaugh's uh, nomination, or is it going to help us in the elections more if we forward it? And I think they've decided we're going to go forward with this. We think that's going to do better, uh, even if it's going to lose us votes on some people. And, and so I, I think the energy that has surrounded this is going to keep up. Um, I, I wish we would be talking about issues that are going to happen in 2019, not a vote that's going to happen tomorrow. But, um, but no, we haven't heard the end of this. Patty, your reaction in general to not only everything we did before last week, but the, the investigation, how it was couched this week? Well, it was not much of an investigation by all accounts that, uh, that Deborah Ramirez had many witnesses she'd suggested they speak to. They didn't. She now has two different lawyers on this. Watching this from Colorado, which was the first state to legalize abortion, the first state to take domestic violence seriously, you know, the first domestic violence court, it was amazing what women did here in the late 60s and early 70s to be taken seriously. And watching it from Colorado is tremendously dismaying. And I mentioned last week the number of women who have talked to me about their own personal stories and what this has done. Unfortunately, it is politics that we're seeing in play. But what we're also seeing is a man who, by his testimony last Thursday, is not someone in demeanor, in attitude, maybe in beer drinking. I like beer drinking. But in anything else does not belong on the high court for the rest of his life. David, wrap it up for us. Was the investigation proper or window dressing? The investigation would have been a lot more proper if Senator Bennett, with all his high dudgeon about harm to the political system, had done the right thing, which is when Deborah Ramirez came to him, he should have then led her to the Senate committee staff, as is normal for all kinds of nominees when there's an accusation like this. And she could have talked to them, and she had every opportunity to provide whatever list of witnesses she claims to have. Obviously, the New York Times and the New Yorker looked massively for supporting witnesses for her and found absolutely none. And at least the, the rumor from this FBI uh, report, which it is confidential, pursuing to rules of the Senate that were adopted under, under President Obama, with it, it's what his White House wanted. Um, but at least the rumor of that is she was even less credible uh, in her FBI interview uh, than in her previous statements where she, by her own account, 35 years afterwards, um, suddenly decided that it was Brett Kavanaugh who did this. 
Let's get to our favorite part of the show, Disgrace of the Week. As always, Ms. Cahoon, please start us off. Well, sorry, Dominic, but tomorrow, Columbus Day Parade will gather in downtown Denver. Four floats this year. It's quite the shadow of its former self. It's fine for Italian-Americans to celebrate their heritage, but it does not belong on Colorado's official calendar list. No group has an official holiday in Colorado, except Italian-Americans. David. Uh, the past few weeks have revealed a widespread problem of prejudice, which is prejudging in this country, where there are many people who decide that the truth of an accusation, they really don't care about the truth, they decide that the person who will be punished after an accusation, well, that depends on the race, the sex, the class, the religion of the accuser and the accused. That's the opposite of fair play, and it's the opposite of the American way. Here, here. Eric. Here, here. Uh, our president, a regular subject uh, at, for this part of the show, his rally in Mississippi where he mocked the accuser, uh, Dr. Ford, whatever you make of her charges, whatever you make of the validity of the issue, whatever you make of corroboration or lack of corroboration, whatever you make of the passage of time, victims, self-professed or otherwise of sexual assault, do not deserve to be mocked by anyone, much less the president. Ed, the news that China has decided to sneak um, uh, surveillance microchips into products used by major technology companies should send a stark message. This country is not our friend. It is our enemy. And aside from this poorly planned trade war we have with them, we should proceed on security matters in considering them an enemy going forward and not blind ourselves to that anymore. Time to see something nice. Patty? Uh, at the end of the month, Governor Hickenlooper has announced that people can apply to all Colorado's public colleges for free, which is great. Not tuition, but just the application fee. Yeah, that's it. 50 bucks is 50 bucks. It's probably a lot more. David. The website of my uh, colleagues at the Cato Institute, humanprogress.org, which demonstrates how much better things are getting in the long term. In 1920, 94% of the world's population lived in extreme poverty. In 1990, that was 35%, and now it's under 10%. Lots of things are getting much better. Eric. Well, I've become a broken record on this one for the past couple of weeks, but uh, I'm wearing a baseball tie here. <laughs> the Rockies uh, did it. They pulled it off, uh, made the playoffs. They need to come home from uh, Milwaukee, hopefully with a split. We'll see how that goes this afternoon as we tape at noon. Real quick, uh, Jeff Breidich, the general manager, is a personal friend. Uh, if you look at the four general managers of the four big sports franchises in Denver, hard to argue that he might be the one on the top of his game. Ed. Got the chance this week to tour Colorado Sake Company, a company that found out you couldn't legally brew sake or get a license to do it in the state of Colorado. So they changed the law, waited for it, opened their own business, and now are booming. It's a good story of working with the government by business. And I have to say something nice is I thought Eric would be the kiss of death of the Rockies. He was not. He was an authentic, correct prognosticator, which does not happen on the show very often. So well done, Eric. And on Monday, celebrate my uh, 13th wedding anniversary for, uh, with my wife, Paula. And if I, if I host a TV show, I've got to be able to take advantage of it there. So happy anniversary, honey. A reminder for next week, our debates continue as we begin to feature candidate races. First up, Congressional District 6 with incumbent Mike Kaufman and Democratic challenger Jason Crow. And at 7.30, we kick off the semifinal rounds of both sides of the story. Students from Denver East and Cherry Creek High Schools debate if Colorado City should have safe injection sites to combat the overdose crisis. Be sure to tune in. For everyone here at Colorado Public Television, I'm Dominic DiZutti. Good night.